Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Hsu. And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Ted Conover. Ted is a pioneer of immersion journalism, an intensive form of reporting in which the reporter lives with his subjects, experiencing the world as much as possible from their point of view. First heard about Ted when I was in college. Ted graduated from Amherst College a year before I started. Stories about his adventures riding the rails a few years earlier was still going around campus. The experience would become material for his first book, Rolling Nowhere, Riding the Rails with America's Hobos, that came out in 1984. He's written four books in intervening decades. Among other topics, today we'll be talking about immigration, the subject of his book, Coyotes, A Journey Across Borders with America's Mexican Migrants, based on a year traveling and working with migrant farm workers living in the Central American communities from whence they came, and prison reform, a topic related to his book, New Jack, about his time working as a prison guard in Sing Sing. Ted has written articles for Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine, and others. He's director of the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University, where he teaches courses on the quote-unquote the journalism of empathy and undercover reporting. Welcome to Manifold, Ted. Thanks very much, Corey. I've described you as practicing immersion journalism. How would you define that? So the sort of basic journalism consists of a journalist asking questions about the five W's, right? This is sort of journalism 101, how to do an interview. I'm a journalist from X, you're a representative of Y, tell me this. And as I thought more about journalism, I thought there's lots of ways a journalist can learn things. A journalist might read a book or watch a movie. A journalist might have her own experience that's relevant to the topic. Say the topic is uh, addiction and the journalist knows about that from her own life. It just occurred to me that journalism can be bigger than the five W's and that journalists can learn through experience and that having those experiences might be really interesting. And so a number of times now I've thought of an experience I'd like to have and figured out how to have it with the idea that I would do it very intentionally. I wouldn't just be out riding the rails for a big adventure. I'd be out riding the rails to learn about what it means to do that when you don't have a choice or that you have a small number of choices and you've chosen that. Um, one thing led to another. When I was riding the rails, I met a number of Mexicans riding the rails and um, was able to connect with them. And that made me think, oh, there's a, definitely a book here. And it's kind of proceeded that way where I see something that seems to me important to write about. And then I find a way to put myself in that picture. And I, I, I tell this to my students, it's really important not to claim you can learn more than a certain amount by immersing. I, uh, an aunt of mine said, oh, you know how to live on the rails and feed yourself, you know, on, out of dumpsters. You, you've become a hobo. And I said, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to be a hobo. I don't. I've not been through what those people have been through. I wouldn't want to go through what they've been through, but I know more than I would have if I hadn't tried this. So that's kind of the underlying idea is um, 
a journalist or another kind of writer can get out of his comfort zone and try to understand somebody else's. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that you have lived in New York City pretty much for the past 30 years. And uh, it's kind of surprising given the number of places you work and the experiences you've had. And, you know, I, I kind of want to get on into the topic of how someone who is pretty urban and has, you know, a certain, a certain type of urban lifestyle these days and you know, how you do get out of your comfort zone to experience that. Because it's something that I think many people found is a problem with reporting these days, that people often don't experience the world outside of major cities. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, you know, one of my colleagues at NYU is, is Pete Hamill, the great New York journalist who likes to say that New York is the capital of people who are not like you. And I really like that idea that even a person identified with Irish, uh, with being Irish or Irish American takes it as a great point of pride that what he loves about the city is people who are not like him and being able to connect with them. And it's telling, I suppose, that until the election of Donald Trump, I thought living around cities was the cure for all kinds of problems in society because living near other people forces you to um, consider their difference and hopefully be more tolerant and just think about society and all its diversity. But uh, the election of Trump did make me think, you know, as a, as a New York based journalist, I might have some of the same myopia that my colleagues on either coast do, which is um, we're not thinking about people in the great middle so much who uh, have felt left behind in recent years and, and feel alienated by the nation's policies on immigration and other matters. I'm from Colorado and uh, miss it. So I'm always looking for a way to go back and uh, spend more time there. So that kind of leads to my most recent project, which is um, an immersion about people off grid out in Southern Colorado. So this was the topic of your cover story at Harper's Magazine called The Last Frontier, Homesteaders on the Margins of America. And we'll have a link to that. So it's about the San Luis Valley in Colorado. Can you describe the valley and tell us why you chose to write about it? Sure. So uh, I guess uh, about four years ago, I revisited a, a different valley in Colorado where I'd spent a lot of time in high school with a buddy, <clears throat> a buddy of mine um, doing cross-country skiing and just hanging out uh, in a remote cabin. And I realized that a lot of people had moved into other parts of this valley, really often in nothing more than a little trailer with no utilities, nothing but a car in most cases. Um, but they did that because they could buy land there. There's still some really uh, cheap land in Colorado. And this is not the sort of, you know, hippie, peace, love, mountain man type of Coloradan uh, that some people think about. There's lots of people who've moved into remote parts of the state who basically prefer to be hermits. They don't all get along with other people. There's a lot of veterans with with PTSD. There's um, 
people who for various reasons are more comfortable out by themselves. There's a, some people among them are uh, interested in the marijuana. Uh, you can grow legally out there. Some of them are cancer survivors who want it for medical reasons. There's all kinds of interesting people, but I had not appreciated the, the, the poverty or the extremity of that kind of life until, uh, until, like I say, just a few years ago, um, my sister works, or she worked for a foundation in Denver that gives money to groups like uh, one in Alamosa, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley that runs a home, a rural homeless shelter, which I'd never even thought about a rural homeless shelter, but there's homeless people in rural America too. This is the second oldest shelter in the country like that. And lately they've been spending a lot of money taking care of people who are trying to live off grid and, and, and then fail to because they run out of wood or clothes or food. And I met them and saw some of the pictures of where folks lived, which is kind of like Appalachia without the trees, just a lot of shacks and mobile homes and um, deprivation and asked if I could volunteer with their rural outreach program. And they said I could. And um, I did that, gosh, for a few months and then um, bought a little trailer and started renting a space from this family, the Grubers, so I could live out there and understand it from that perspective as well, what it's like to, um, to be out there all the time. And I'm talking to you from New York right now because my summer vacation ended um, the end of August. But I'm going back, I'm now in my third year of almost monthly visits. I'll go back next month. I'll go back in January. I'll be back there next summer. And um, yeah, I've written an article and, and that's sort of the first piece of a, a book. Were you thinking already at that point that you were going to write about it? Or was this just sort of something you wanted to do to see that part of Colorado? It's a little of both. I, I never know when I uh, head out to a place if, if there will be be a way for me to write about it, but I'm always hopeful there will. So yeah, that was the beginning, was the hope that I'd be able to write about it. You know, I have to say, reading the article, that I see myself as pretty aware of kind of the demographics of poverty in the U.S., and I, th I think everyone's familiar with urban poverty, Appalachian poverty, kind of ex-urban poverty, but I, I didn't know there are places like this, which where, you know, this great wide open, this cheap land, it's fairly beautiful, although it's pretty difficult place to live during the winter months and that you can have something like 19th century homesteading. It really, in so many ways, lots of this valley looks the way it did a uh, hundred or 150 years ago. Uh, the biggest difference would be motor vehicles around the edges of the valley where there are mountains and evergreen trees is where the longtime residents prefer to live. And the most long-time residents are Hispanics. The culture's really connected to um, New Mexico. And there are a lot of people who speak this old-fashioned Spanish and really very little English. Even people who grew up there and work on farms, it, that kind of blew me away too, how many people were not uh, good at speaking English, but they're American. It kind, it kind of throws the whole... It, it kind of it's kind of a twist on the immigration debate because it's totally a twist. They look at the mostly um, Caucasian people who settled out on this prairie as um, 
as squatters or uh, they don't call them illegal immigrants, but they seem to think of them that way sometimes. The, the white people out there definitely feel they're at the bottom of the totem pole and, uh, and they complain about it. Just to uh, paint a picture for our readers who maybe haven't read the article, um, this is kind of a flat, scrubby area of the valley, a little bit like kind of New Mexico and it uh, gets very cold in the winter, and uh, people are living in trailers or sort of not-so-well-constructed cabins and such, off-grid often, and it seems to be a little bit lawless. There's a lot of shooting. I guess a lot of people, like, ranging from someone's pit bull to random people have been shot recently that you run into, and uh, I think people said if you left your stuff there, it would de- if you left a camper or something there, it would be definitely broken into while you were away, and... Yeah, definitely a very unique part of America. And and like the Old West in a lot of ways, in the number of firearms, I'd say, the transients of a lot of people there, a lot of people don't last very long. They come and go, new people arrive. But yeah, you point out a lot of the main features of it. And one of them, it's it's huge. It's really almost the size of New Jersey, the San Luis Valley, and the views are they go on forever. And the sky has several kinds of weather going on at the same time. There's just environmentally, if you if you like that, as I do, it's, it's kind of heavenly. It, um, I miss the humidity of the East Coast sometimes because I think that's easier on um, respiration. But I like so much about being out there that it's, for me, it's become a great counterweight to um, uh, urbanness. But by the time I got to the end of your article, I was wondering whether Ted actually bought some land out there and maybe put a, a shipping container there and built a little cabin. So what, what have you actually got out there that you're visiting? Is it just your sister or is, have you got a, a spread there now? <laughs> a spread. A spread sounds grand. <laughs> I like that. I should get a spread. I, my sister's in New Mexico and I uh, have uh, left my truck with her. But yeah, I've gone from owning a little trailer that I could move around to actually buying some land myself. So I'd have some skin in the game as far as that goes. Uh, I bought, well, you can buy five acres for three or $4,000, uh, which is a, a miracle, really. It's like a month of rent in New York, right? <laughs> I know. For for a one-bedroom apartment. You can actually own land. It turns out, though, that if you try to live on it, you'll be violating the law until you put in a septic system and uh, a house that's at least 600 square feet. So, you know, if if you're thinking you'll live there in your RV, they might not let you. Law enforcement is underfunded, and they have this, you know, these counties are very poor, and they don't have many deputies. So a lot of things that wouldn't go on in a more developed place do go on there. And yeah, well, there's a lot of my neighbors seem to have felonies on their record and different um, reasons to be on the lookout for things. Um, you have one little anecdote in there where I think an inspector's going to show up at a woman's house to look at her. She's building some addition, and she manages to <laughs> right. drive away just, just before the deputies <laughs> arrive. 
I was doing a ride along with the deputies and they, uh, as they came over the hill, they, they were looking really carefully at what was going on and they saw her peeling out and um, clearly trying to avoid a meeting with them because they were there to tell her her construction was illegal. And uh, I've since gotten to know her a bit. She doesn't like to talk about that particular episode, but yeah, there's, there's a lot. I think people love being able to do what they want out there. Um, I think the I, this message of our president that there's too much government resonates with with life out there. People don't want to be interfered with. It's not a completely coherent worldview because lots, if not most of them, are dependent on government money to survive, whether it's um, social security, disability payments, veterans benefits, or food stamps. If the federal government did not exist, a lot of people out there would starve. But just the same, they're, they're against the idea of big government and um, not saying everybody, but a lot of people you suggested in the article that most of the people out there are Trump supporters. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and that's been another thing for me to figure out because um, I, I didn't vote for Trump. Um, but I'm willing to listen to people who did and try to figure out why. And particularly from the perspective of, of journalism, the journalists I know work hard to write factually and in a way that can be checked and duplicated, right? Like we, we pride ourselves on factuality. And so to be told that there's this decline in the trust of journalists and in fact, a decline in the trust of traditional media of all kinds is kind of a problem and I want to know why, right? I want to know why people laugh when they hear I watch CNN as though that were some uh, propaganda organ, right? Like, I'm like, really? Uh, so we have a lot of conversations where we're starting so far apart and uh, I just try not to get upset. You, you know, I, I spent about 10 years on the West Coast, four of it in Seattle and you know, I, my family's from New York. I grew up on the East Coast. And I have to say that living out in Seattle especially gave me a real appreciation for the kind of libertarian point of view that you describe. I mean, the idea that people really want to be left alone. And there's a sense, especially in Seattle, just a physical sense of how far removed the federal government is, right? You know, it's it's 3,000 miles away effectively. And, and you really feel it. In many ways, Seattle feels closer to the Pacific Rim than does to D.C. And there's a real sense of why are those people over there telling me how to live my life? It was just it was just in the air, even among people who were pretty liberal. And, you know, there are all the contradictions you describe. Many of these people were on some kind of public assistance, dependent upon the federal government. But there really was a sense in which people just wanted to be, just kind of just be left alone. It, you know, the, the contrast is Seattle's a fully developed place, and you're describing a place that's very... You know, it's it's almost it's almost an emerging society, and you kind of describe the beginnings of sort of social services in the area uh, from these small organizations. So, if you could take a minute and read the, the there's a passage um, we describe 
attempts of, you know, a basically a social worker to meet people. Yeah, sure. So yes, I, I'll refer to this group called La Puente, which is a, a social service group started by nuns trying to deal with homelessness years ago. And it's, it's a really uh, vibrant, vigorous group based in Alamosa, the biggest town in this valley. In 2015, La Puente realized that many attempts to live on the prairie ended with homesteaders presenting themselves at the shelter. The workers there heard stories of people skipping diabetes medication because they didn't have gas to get into town, or running out of food, or being isolated in abusive relationships. While the valley has approximately equal numbers of white and Hispanic people, poor people out on the prairie tend to be white. But it was all kinds of people. Lance's, uh, this is the director, Lance's scouts reported that an African-American woman and her four children were living in an unfinished house with little heat and no water. This is a quote. We were getting stories like that and collectively thought, we need to be out there, said Lance. We should have known this long ago. But like everyone else in the community who drives on paved roads, we hadn't paid attention. So is this one of the first social service agencies in the area? Uh, you know, there are various nonprofits. This must be one of the first, and it's certainly one of the most prominent now. They're very active. They have uh, AmeriCorps volunteers who help, help staff the shelter, but they also run social enterprises like a used clothing store and a coffee shop. And they have a summer program for kids from families in crisis. And they just do all kinds of great things. I, um, it's great to, ri- to roll up on somebody's property with a La Puente sign on your truck because people just know they do good stuff, right? They're, <clears throat> they're just there to help. So that's been one of the great pleasures of this research is, um, is talking with Lance, who, who's a real expert on homelessness and understands the desire of people, like uh, how much they'll put up with just to own their own place, right? Like this whole idea of home ownership, it applies whether you have a three-bedroom, three-bath house in the suburbs or a trailer with a mattress on the floor and a dog on a chain in front. I mean, the pride of ownership is there in both cases. And um, that's been really fascinating to to see that at work. You know, as I was reading this article, I was uh, kind of thinking about your kind of body work, trying to figure a nice way to sum it up. Um, you have a line in there which actually doesn't sum up the body of work, but it sort of sums up your own personal outlook. And you say, I'm a, I'm a city guy trying to fashion a bridge to the margins. I'm glad you noticed that. I had not paid attention to that myself, but it's it's true. I think um, I've, I've got ad- advantages that come from my academic job, and I've come I've got advantages that come with my education, and um, you know from the advantages I had growing up. And it just seems to me a, a good way to use that is to put myself out there. And it's not just altruism either. I really like the challenge of learning something on my own. Like, um, you know, whether it's how do you get across the Rio Grande River if you don't know how to swim? Or how do you stay warm 
in a valley where it's 20 degrees below most nights in January, right? And um, how do you, are you, I worked at Sing Sing. How do you, how do you manage a large group of men more physically powerful than oneself in an effective way, you know, without having a weapon other than my own puny wrists? So, uh, yeah, how do I, how do I do that? I, I, I like the challenge and I, I keep looking for it. It, it seems to me, having read a fair bit of your work, that you know you're, you're very interested in immersing yourself in the detail, and maybe a little bit of theorizing about the sort of micro level incentives, like what what is a an individual in that milieu feel or or need to do. But there's an absence of that kind of more grand theorizing about oh, what does this mean about America, and what would Tocqueville have said about this? Uh, Tocqueville does appear, however, in in the book on, on in, in New Jack, I believe, right. He does because he he's one of the first people to write about Sing Sing, yeah. And Gustave de Beaumont, his I guess his we buddy. can't avoid Tocqueville, but it does seem like it's not. It's somewhat a theoretical, right? It's immersive, but uh, somewhat a theoretical. Is that fair? So I um, I admire sociologists. I admire people who can explain things on a theoretical level, and I want to um, acknowledge them and be smarter because of them. But at the same time my job as a writer is to reach people who are more interested in story than in theory. And um, I often use my mom as an example of a person I'm writing for. She went to college, but she'd never read a work of sociology for pleasure, right? She, she could make her way through it, but she wouldn't enjoy those big words. And, and I don't think the lessons of it would stick with her as much as they would in a story um, with people she can relate to in it. So I try to make myself one of those people in my writing. I te- I'm just more comfortable um, telling a story where I'm in the picture. So the reader isn't pretending I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I want to be upfront about the change it makes for me to be there. But then I want to tell stories that matter because of what's being discussed in politics or in uh in theoretical discussions about the reasons for poverty right is what i is what i'm seeing evidence for this or is it not but i i try to carry that lightly because again i want i want people to pay attention and it's hard to get people to pay attention to some of these topics like prison you know unless it's unless it's uh, a story about the electric chair or gang wars people just are not that interested in reading about prison and and uh immigration is all over the news right now but i think you know that in a way that can dull the senses of of some readers if it's just this drumbeat of dysfunction on our border. And, and you want to transcend that and tell a story they'll remember so they'll care about it. This is a perfect segue because I like to talk about um, immigration and your book, Coyotes. So restricting immigration, I mean, not, not to do exactly what Steve just, you know, said we shouldn't be doing here, but... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> okay, well, we're, uh, we're going to talk about some grand themes here a little bit, not ask you to theorize, but look, restricting immigration policy is probably the, sen- the signature initiative of the Trump presidency. And I get the impression you might have had a few thoughts on this. <laughs> 
having spent uh, having thirty years ago written a really interesting book uh, about Mexican migrants. So the book came out eighty seven. It's it's thirty two years old. But can you put yourself back in that time period and set the stage for the book? What led you to write it, and what strikes you about you know different about the immigration debate back then to now? A lot has changed. You know, when, one of the enduring images of quote-unquote illegal immigration from my childhood and teenage years is that picture. I bet you remember some of these from news stories about people the Border Patrol caught on the U.S. side, like jammed into the trunk of a big car, and the Border Patrol agent opens the back of the of the trunk, and there's these people blinking back there. I thought that's that's an inadequate representation of of undocumented migration to to cast these people as as criminals um, might be fair in a very tiny percentage of cases, but in most cases they're people who it seemed to me resembled my ancestors in a lot of ways, and those of most of us in america they they came from somewhere else under all kinds of different um, circumstances, but that's, that's who they are. That's who we are. And, um, and there's this constant uh, cycle in the U S of, of forgetting we're a nation of immigrants and, and of deciding to pull up the mat. My grandfather was an illegal immigrant. He, uh, he happened to walk off a ship from uh, the Caribbean in 1917 and didn't walk back. <laughs> Yeah, oh, seriously? Disappeared wow. into the West Indian community in Brooklyn. Huh. He was able to regularize his citizenship yeah, somehow? Yeah, I, I pulled it off, but he did. Yeah. So anyway, I didn't like demonizing this whole class of, of people. And it wasn't until I found myself, I think I was in Sacramento, California, under a highway overpass waiting to catch out on a train that I ran into three Mexican guys traveling together who, to my surprise, were uh, fine talking to me. I, I spoke decent Spanish at the time, not, not as good a Spanish as I did after my research for, for coyotes, but solid Denver Public Schools Spanish. And um, uh, it was really fun to talk to them. And it made me think, oh, they, would, they will talk to me. Because I had, you know, it's not easy to to bridge that gap and, and get, get people to talk to you. But if you're alone and you show, you know, you show yourself as a human being and, and make an effort, it's possible. So I just thought this is a, this is an epic story that, you know, the, the people coming up here to try their luck and, and do some of our crummy jobs and, um, and take their chances. This is this is an epic thing. This is American history. This is what I want to do. So, a bunch of things have changed since then. In the '80s, most of those migrants were from Mexico. They're mostly male. They were mostly headed for um, for uh, agricultural jobs. Those those some went to cities. And there were a lot of patterns in the migration. This you know a village in Oaxaca would send workers every year to Florida to pick citrus and a village in Michoacan 
would send workers to Arkansas to pick tomatoes. And there are all these patterns underlying what looked in the news like random immigration. I thought this is really interesting, the fact of these long-term relationships. And the farmers, you know, who, who probably vote conservative but depend on this the return of these undocumented workers year after year to get their crops picked. I thought this is all pretty interesting. Since then, a bunch of things have changed. Um, many more women are part of the mix now. Many more migrants head to cities to work in shops and uh, lawn crews and housekeeping, hotels. And in the last small number of years, a preponderance uh, seemed to be coming from Central America and escaping violence and upheaval there. And certainly there are almost no kids crossing when I was doing it. And that is um, a commonplace now. And so, yeah, things, things have changed. And another thing that's probably changed is um, when I wrote Coyotes, nobody was writing about this first person, almost nobody. But there's been this sort of democratization of American letters. So it's much more likely to find people with a, a Latino background like um, Luis Alberto Orrea or you know any number of fiction and nonfiction writers who've taken up these topics. And I probably, uh, I would write a different book about immigration these days. But the approach I took then seemed to work for the for the historical moment, and um, I love that book. I had the most fun researching that of any book I've done because the guys I was with looked after me. They were my age. They were they wanted an adventure, you know. They were not like the hobos with paranoia and drug problems. These guys are just, you know, they want to have adventures and. So yeah, that's kind of the story behind Coyotes. I crossed the border three times with different groups of Mexicans and went from Phoenix to Idaho, Los Angeles, and uh, Florida. So you you mentioned demonization, where uh, someone who maybe is uh, anti-immigration or the stereotypical Trump supporter would regard all these people as criminals. But don't you think there's actually a demonization of people who want to have secure borders in the United States? That you're, if you say we should be a nation of laws and we should enforce the borders that we have, that therefore, you, if you have that opinion, you are a racist and you really dislike these honest, hardworking people who want to work in the fields. I feel like that demonization is just as present, actually more perhaps stronger in our current society than the other one. I, you know, I think Trump and other Trump supporters will often speak movingly about how if they were in that situation, they would leave Guatemala and come to the U.S. and send money back to their family. And they, they understand the economic forces that are driving these people to come to our country. But they also think that we should be a nation of laws and actually have laws regarding who can become an American citizen, who can live here. I think there's those arguments are often quite persuasive that every country, you know, defines itself by its borders and um, its ability to control its borders. And there's lots of people who's, who are against undocumented immigration because they'll say, you know, they're, 
their family had to wait. Their family followed the rules and came when it was their turn and these others are jumping the line. I respect that position and I've never thought we should have open borders. I, in my book, I talk more about the hypocrisy of welcoming people again and again to work certain jobs that keep our economy going while never offering them the, uh, the legal accommodations that everybody else gets, right? There, there's hypocrisy in the way we've treated these workers. As a matter of general principles, I'm not against controlling our border. I'm, I'm actually not against um, stopping asylum seekers at the Mexico border with Guatemala. There, you know, there's nothing in the um, Geneva Conventions that's, that says people get to go through, I don't think, any country in order to get to the country where they want to um, apply for asylum. So I don't think these issues are, are black and white. And I probably, I find grounds for agreement with a lot of people who have some who have some of those positions. I, I was just thinking, you know, Corey and I are both really like the city of Paris and probably over time have spent many thousands of dollars as tourists. And so I think the French owe it to me. I should just have a citizenship and a French passport because I like it there. Why don't they just let me live there? You know, I think, look, I think these issues are really, really complicated. You know, Steve and I, we, we go back and forth in many ways. It's Coming back to your view about the cities, I find it very hard often to get many of my friends who are very, very liberal and lefty to kind of see how some might be want to restrict immigration. I, I give them one argument. Here's let's get your reaction to it. You know, I I moved here from New York and I used to live in Washington Heights. Washington Heights is largely a Dominican neighborhood now. There's still uh, still some black population, but it's a very vibrant neighborhood, but a lot of the people there are undocumented. And you see people People, undocumented people working um, in dry cleaning shops. Uh, some people own them are often documented, both employ and document people. They work in superintendents, superintendents of buildings, and they're fantastic. You know, I, I compare, like, from, from my personal selfish point of view, right, I benefit immensely from liberal, educa- liberal immigration policies because, you know, the price of dry cleaning is much cheaper in Washington Heights than it is in East Lansing. Mm-hmm. You know, I get extremely good Dominican food, uh, often cooked by undocumented people in Washington Heights. But I'm not competing with people in Washington Heights for jobs. And I, I, I compare it to a lot of the you know, black men I see in Washington Heights who many of them don't have jobs. And some of the jobs they had in the past was building superintendents. Yeah. And these jobs are now occupied by Dominican immigrants. And much of the work done in the buildings is done by undocumented people. And I tell my friends, I'm like, you know, those guys in the corner don't have jobs, right? They're not Trump voters, but if they're white, they might be because they're losing out. They're not benefiting the way I am from cheap dry cleaning and from inexpensive building care. I mean, look, the labor market is just, it's a competitive market no matter who you are and what level you are. And if you're in this country with skills, you're competing against somebody. You may be benefiting someone like me, but you're competing against somebody else. And I try to get people to see the point of view that you know, some people win, some people lose, or at least then maybe that's too hard to say. It's all or nothing, but some people benefit and some people are hurt by immigration. It's just a very complicated issue. Yeah. And a lot of those most hurt by undocumented immigration, as you say, are low on the economic scale. There's a passage in Coyotes where 
a group I'm with is going to Houston to get work on a cement pouring crew. And um, I use it as a test. I, I say, well, let me try to get a job too. <laughs> and um, they look they look worried. And I go, well, let me just call the guy. Do you, can I have his number? And and they say, uh, okay. And I I tell the guy I'm willing to do anything. I'm a hard worker. I get along with these Mexicans. I speak Spanish. Can can you give me a job? And he's like, uh, we really, really, we really just work with Mexicans. And I said, well, come on, I, I'm American. I could do this work. He said, oh, I'll ask the boss. But that's the end of it. You know, the, the, there are jobs where that's who they want and they won't hire the uh, the black guy who could be the super and they or they won't hire a guy like me. And, and you can't deny that. T- to me, the, um, where I part company with what's happening in, in immigration policy now is you've got a super who's worked 10 years. Is, is deporting him the best way to spend, the best way to enforce our immigration policy, okay? Is uh, dislocating families who've been here for years and years. Does that really make sense or would we be better off yeah, stopping the flow at the border or intervening. I'm not exactly sure how, but doing more to help the governments of El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, you know, return to a more familiar version of civil society that doesn't produce all of these refugees. Down in the San Luis Valley where I've been hanging around, hanging out, people, you know, people love to say build the wall and a lemonade stand I passed where the sign says, help Trump build the wall. We're raising money to build the wall. And I'm like, oh, wow. So you, you gave a really good example that captures the difficulty of it, right? So guy's been working in the U.S. for 10 years. He's responsible. Maybe he even has a family here. Maybe his kids were born here. So they're citizens, right? And you, they catch him. So what should they do? He violated the law. He's not supposed to be here. Very tough. It's totally tough. I don't, I don't think... I think uh, raids, I think workplace raids should be a last resort. And I think tearing apart a family that has native born children should be a last resort. I, I, uh, that's a horrific thing to do. And it, it fills me with shame whenever I see we're doing it. Just to turn it around though, when you were at Sing Sing, so, you know, there's a wall around Sing Sing and, you know, a lot of those people probably agree should be in Sing Sing, right? It's better for society that they're locked up. But imagine you meet a guy, you're working there for years, and you meet a guy who seems to be totally reformed. He's a good person. You'd trust him, you know, maybe even babysitting your kid, but he's serving a life sentence because he killed somebody. Would you just change the law and let the guy out? Uh, you know, is that a, really the right that's, thing that's to not do? A, it's not a fair analogy. He, he ended up in Sing Sing. Chances are because he killed somebody. If you're in a maximum security prison... There's a good chance you killed somebody, and that's a whole lot different from you took a job as a mopping the floor in a building in Washington Heights. Yeah, the taking of the job is not the issue, but the the you know illegally entering a country and remaining there when you're you know it's illegal, right? You break the law, and then later they catch you for breaking the law. Should they just not punish you because oh, it's a little bit heartrending to punish you now? You know, the guy could have been in Sing Sing twenty years, and he's he killed the guy when he was seventeen. And now he just seems totally reformed. Let him out. Yeah, I don't think the analogy works. Man, let's stick with your argument, Steve, about 
the question of whether... <laughs> well, it's a rule of law question, right? So if you have laws in the books, um, yeah, it, it's, sometimes it's heartrending to enforce these laws, right? But sometimes if, you if have you to... Run, if you run ICE, Steve, and you have a billion-dollar budget, you can choose how to spend it. And, and uh, spending it to deport long-term residents seems to me not the best way to spend it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the prioritization should be somewhere else. Um, I don't know the details about how they make that exact decision. But, you know, it, it's also a big step to say, hey, if, if you've got a hard luck story, hey, good luck. Uh, great for you. You're a citizen now. I, I don't think that's the right way to go either. We've touched on Sing Sing a little bit. So I do want to get into New Jack and prison reform. But I do have a couple more questions on coyotes. Um, one of the big changes I sense reading your book is there was actually a fair amount of dislocation in these communities when the men were coming up from Central America. You did something which I had never seen before for a report outside. You actually went there and lived in the communities where the men had left. And you saw sort of striking difficulties had been posed on these communities by the lack of men. What seems really different now is people are often fleeing violence-ridden places to come to the States. So the immigration is trying, people are trying to solve their problems by leaving these communities rather than immigration itself causing problems. I mean, is that take right? And do you think? Yeah, well, and I, uh, you know, the emigration from these uh, ranchos, the little villages in central Mexico that send, that are such net producers of migrants, um, you know, that's a voluntary thing that the men see opportunity and they they want to send money home to their families they want to as one guy told me i want to build the biggest house in huilotla which is this uh community of shacks basically and he built this two-story cement um structure which he's very proud of and and it reminds me of um like in this city here how common it is for women from various places, including the Caribbean, to leave their own children with relatives so they can care for the children of wealthy people and send money home, right? And that's, you see it and you think, oh, I don't feel so good about that. But it's a, it's a choice they, it's an economic choice they made. Um, One of these reminds me of something I noticed in the east side of New York living there. I, I would say the Martian came to the east side of New York City. They'd be struck by the strange genetics of the place, which is... <laughs> All these white kids with black mothers walking around the park. <laughs> that's like, I know. It's just that's exactly what it's like, and it's uh, that's it's a it's a weird part of living in New York. But anyway, you know, I don't have an ex a firsthand experience of of um, being dislocated from Central America myself, but I. I do believe most of those people probably have a, a real fear of, um, of something terrible happening to them. And, and that has induced them to leave their home. So yeah, those are two very different kinds of immigration to me. And uh, uh, they're hard to compare. It's interesting. At the time you're writing Coyotes, I was um, actually spending some time in Nicaragua. I was one of these, I was a Sandalista back then. You were. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, yeah, it was, I spent time there um, over summers in, um, in January of actually 1986. Um, but it's, that's thought to be sort of the beginning of the current troubles, which is you had in a lot of these wars, a lot of kids left during the wars to go to 
off in Southern California, got involved in gangs there, often end up in prison, get deported back to Central America, again, now fully prepped in uh, how to organize a gang in violence, and they've kind of wrecked these countries. Now, I don't want to people fall into the trap of trying to blame U.S. problem, saying the U.S. is the cause of all the problems in this area. I think that's actually not right, but I think there is some, there's probably some influence of uh, the wars we supported and some of the violence in uh, Southern California leading back. So something else that's become really, uh, I think, also a movement in recent years is trying to reverse the policies of mass incarceration. Yeah. There's a generalized view, uh, I like to see your attitude towards it, that the war on drugs was really, really overkill. It was a serious mistake and ruined a lot of people's lives on the basis of very, very, for just very little reason. As I understand it, part of your motivation for becoming a prison guard was to get inside prisons in what at the time was the height of mass incarceration. Right. Um, so again, I'd like to take you the same way you had the thought about, um, you described getting, coming to write Coyotes. Yeah. Um, and your story about New Jack is actually quite funny because you said it you, you wrote it as a result of a failure to get in Sing Sing by kind of legitimate means. <laughs> Sometimes failures can be productive. But yeah, I, um, I had a connection to The New Yorker. I'd published a story on riding with truck drivers in this route uh, in Central Africa that was associated with the spread of HIV. And, uh, and I had just moved to New York and I thought, this is the big story. All these headlines about record numbers of people locked up and and the racial character of the incarceration, you know, the preponderance of occupants of these state penitentiaries are young men from the five boroughs of New York City. And what, you know, what what's it like in those prisons? Um, uh, how could I write about this? And I I usually start my projects with reading. And the best books about life in American prisons are by prisoners, whether um, uh, George Jackson or um, Jack Henry Abbott, the prisoner who was a good writer that Norman Mailer helped get out. And of course, immediately, like six weeks after he got out, he stabbed and killed a waiter on Houston Street. That was a bit of a mistake. But um, I thought, I can't become a prisoner. That's not in any way that doesn't look ridiculous where I, you know, I'd have to, where I'd be let out to go home at night. I didn't want to try something like that. And I, I thought the one perspective that really has not been addressed is that of, of, um, of guards, of officers. And that's something I could conceivably write about. So yeah, I got an assignment from the New Yorker to write about a family of upstate COs and then the state wouldn't let me go to work with them. They'd let me tour a prison of my choice, but then I couldn't go back and see how the aunt who had worked there 20 years did her job or the nephew who was just starting as a rookie, how he did his job. They wouldn't let me in. So that, I think, is the first project I, uh, I approached surreptitiously. I thought, in this case, it's... It's, it would be ethical to hide my intent because the subject matters so much. And it would give me access to a really unusual story that um, would, I think, really help the current debate about mass incarceration. So that's sort of the background. I'm not the first person to have done this. A couple journalists did it in the 70s, but just for a week or two. I'm the, 
I'm the first one to do it for such a long time. It took me a long time to get the job. I think it took three years from when I applied for, to take the civil service exam um, to, to when I got hired. Shane Bauer did a shorter stint as a private prison guard in the South for Mother Jones a couple of years ago, and he got hired in a week um, because they're so desperate for prison guards at $12 an hour or whatever they were paying him. But um, no, I, I, I joined the Correction Officers Union after I had already sat down with them to report a story the usual way. And, um, and that's the book I'm best known for and probably the most stressful uh, research I've ever done. Did your time at Sing Sing um, lead you to any conclusions about mass incarceration? So of the ki- of the people that you saw in there, how many of them did you really think should have been locked up as opposed to out on the street? So most corrections officers aren't in a good position to make that judgment because we don't, we're not allowed to see their whole history, right? We can see their rap sheet. When I was working there, this online inmate lookup went live. So you could tell, you could find out what somebody had been convicted of, but that's not really enough to know or to make it up your mind about whether they should be in. But there's a scene where I'm walking a guy to the hospital building one day. He'd gotten a a, um, cockroach lodged in his ear. It was really there. It was astonishing. Um, And as we walk back, I'm just chatting with him. He and I are walking through the, these long, dark halls that connect old brick buildings. And I said, so, you know, what, what, what are you here for? And uh, he's, yeah, he said armed robbery and it was connected to drugs. I said, well, what are you, how long's your bid? He said, CO, I'm here till the sun burns out. <laughs> and this guy was like 20 years old. So I don't think, a 20-year-old should be sentenced to prison till the sun burns out, even if he did something really bad. Uh, I think, you know, American sentencing, uh, especially in those years, was extremely harsh and out of proportion to both the crime and the social interest in uh, our interest as citizens in seeing you know, not paying $70,000 a year to keep somebody locked up, but rather maybe hoping they might contribute something to society one day. And so I met a bunch of people who I, um, who I thought, you know, you're so young, you should not be here till you die. But I also, I'll I'll be candid, Steve, I met guys who I thought, thank goodness you're locked up here. (laughs) And, um, and I met prisoners who said, Conover, I know you believe in rehabilitation, but some of these guys was never habbed in the first place, <laughs> right? Like they don't let them out. Like you hear other prisoners say that about certain people and you think, well, that's a good point. It, it's kind of an impossible question because you could take a perfectly law-abiding person and if they get locked up for the, you know, by accident, you know, they say they're innocent, but they get locked up anyway, they could turn into a really terrible person after being in prison for a long time. And similarly, somebody who seems like a nice guy in prison, when he gets out, he might stab a waiter the next day. So yeah. it's just tough to yeah. know. No, it is. And prisons make people worse, I think, in most situations. There's exceptions. And then just a, a perfect example of, of um, people not belonging there is a guy who changed his name to Habib 
on his third prison sentence. He was born Vincent Jenkins in Newark. Uh, he converted to Islam, which a lot of African-American men do in prison. And um, was in, he told, I, he, uh, was in his late 60s, I think. And he's in uh, for his third sentence, and it was for rape. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, how many guys you know convicted for rape when they're 65 years old? And I said, uh, well, I, you're the only one I know. And he said, I didn't do it either. And you learn as an officer not to argue. Like, you don't, a lot of people tell you they're innocent. And you just stop, you just stop arguing. You go, okay, all right, fine, you're innocent. This guy was innocent. He, um, he got transferred to the geriatric unit of a different prison right after I quit. I went to visit him. He told me, my lawyer's going to get me out. She's got a DNA evidence. I got the Innocence Project working for me. And six months later, I'm lying in bed watching uh, New York One News. And out from Greenhaven Prison comes um, Habib, Warith al-Habib, with this pro bono lawyer he talked about in Barry Sheck. And he's telling the truth. And I had been part of his punishment right? So I had locked him up. I had told him to get in his cell. His shower's over. Get in there. So I like, I like to think as a journalist, you know, I'm not going to be implicated in stuff like that. But I, I was a prison guard and I locked him up. So um, yeah, I still think about that. When you're uh, telling a prisoner, hey, showers, now this guy was old, but imagine he was not old. He was the 20-year-old guy and very physically imposing. And you say, Hey Joe, your shower's over. Get in the cell. What are you What are you feeling there? Are you feeling like this? Hey, if this if this guy loses his temper, uh, they're not going to be able to save me before he cracks my skull on the tile. Um, do you ever think that way, or do you just have to feel like I'm in charge of the situation? <laughs> no, you you think that way because you're a human being, and that's a rational analysis of the situation that he could come out and crash my head against the tiles, but the challenge is to act like you're not thinking that way so that he doesn't think you're thinking that way. But there's a day I started threatening a guy taking his shower with loss of privileges. And um, <laughs> he, he turned off the, he, this is a very muscular man. He turned off the shower. He said, okay, I'm done. And I said, but you're covered with soap. He said, I'm done, CO, let me out. And I'm like, uh-oh. Because he's totally covered with soap and shampoo. And I'm alone on the floor of this prison cell, and I let him out, and he came right into my face, and he's going, motherfucker, don't you tell me when my shower is over. I'll teach your ass and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, shit. And um, just then some other officers came around the corner and he backed down, but that scenario plays in your mind every single day, and you've got an alarm on your radio, so you can call for help if you're in a situation you can't handle, but help's going to take two or three minutes anyway to get there, and that's a long time to be with a big, strong guy who hates your guts, and um, so that's a frightening job, and I think uh, I probably had some PTSD when I left there. Yeah, rumor has it that you you finished the assignment because it was affecting your marriage. Is that right? It certainly didn't help my marriage. Um, 
I thought I was doing my wife a favor by not sharing the stress of my day. You know, I'm not going to tell my wife about the guy covered with soap who's in my face or about slipping in that pool of blood in the hallway because I didn't see it. It was so dark there. Or There's stuff you just, and we had a baby daughter at the time. You just don't want to bring that home, right? On the other hand, if you don't talk about it, it manifests. And she um, could tell I was upset and just shut down and yeah, I thought I was being very generous and, uh, you know, nice in the way I was uh, dealing with that with her. And uh, I don't think I actually did such a good job. Back to that shower scene, is there any kind of code among the guards that if I saw a prisoner who looked like he was in your face and might do something that we got to beat this guy down so they learn they can't do stuff like that? Is that was that part of it? Well, you would feel bound to protect me from injury that's the way i think we're we were trained to look at it and if in the course of keeping me from being injured he got a little bit hurt that might not be too upsetting to the officers involved right but they wouldn't yeah. it was not considered okay that this guy looked like he might have gone off on my buddy ted but he didn't but i'm still going to beat him down that that doesn't happen so much you know if I pulled my pin, if I said, I'm feeling, uh, I'm really threatened, I need help, that's all that would be needed for them to, um, to use physical force and uh, restrain him. And in the course of restraint, sometimes more force is used than it was absolutely necessary. It's funny, the longer I worked in prison, the less that disturbed me. And I say this very candidly. I don't think that's right. I think there's rules in prison, and of course, everyone should follow them, and no one, no extra force should ever be used against anybody. But the whole culture of prison polarizes you into prisoner or officer, and and if I'm scared and you come to my aid, I am... I, I feel love toward you. And if you hurt that guy while helping me, I'm not too upset by it. Yeah, it's kind of natural. Yeah, it's just acculturation that happens under any kind of circumstance. You, you do discuss some people in there who took pretty different approaches towards prisoners. You know, I think it's funny. You, at some point in time, I think you, have, you give these two extremes of one guy who's incredibly hard and one guy's kind of like a homie. You're like, I kind of want to be—you say, I want to be right down in the middle. Uh, but one of the most successful guys you describe is a guy who's— you just say treats prisoners like human beings. Uh, how rare yeah. was that? So he grew up, <clears throat> that guy grew up in Harlem and he, uh, he believed in law and order, but he also believed in drawing lines and he hadn't committed a felony and they had, and, and they needed to be, they needed to um, comply with his directions. And um, he wasn't going to get personal about it, but he's going to, you know, he's, he's going to enforce the rules. And I, I just really admired him. And <laughs> I feel bad because I openly praise him in my book. And of course, he got all kinds of shit for that after my book came out. Yeah, Conover says, you're the best <laughs> officer. <laughs> Ted, when, when you're working in these situations, how much of the time are you thinking, hey, this is material I can use for my book? Because you're in there, actually. I mean, your purpose for signing up to work at Sing Sing was to 
gather material for your writing. Is that right? So it was, yeah. And so does it completely recede from your consciousness, or are you are you are you? How much does it affect your behavior when you're in there? Not much. You know, a lot of prison work is kind of boring, and you do have time to think. Oh yeah, the joke I just heard that prisoner tell would be pretty good to write down, and I might go around a corner and write it down. And I've got this little notebook in my breast pocket and I, you're supposed to use it to write prisoners numbers and the things they they want, but I would use it to write stuff like that. On the other hand, there'll be, you know, moments of, of terror or excitement. And in that moment, you're not a writer. You're just a, a guy trying to survive and it's not till hours later sometimes that you realize, oh, that might be good to write about. So there were a bunch of episodes of things that happened to me, including a day I got slugged and uh, I don't know, a story I heard on the radio one morning driving to work about a New York City school teacher who'd made friends with some of his students and a couple of them had then robbed him. And I think he got killed. And I was thinking that's the lost kids who are going to come, they're going to be on my cell block in a year, right? Once they go through the system, those lost souls are going to be work are, are going to be in cells. And um, it, it, I'm not a deadline journalist because it takes me a couple days to figure out that's something important and I should really write it down. And I do write stuff down and that's how I would actually transition from the job back to my home life is I'd, sneak in the back door and <clears throat> type out my notes until it was just out of my system and I could go be normal with my kids. Did anyone get onto you during the course of your reporting that kept me suspicious? There was one guy who was suspicious. He was my bunkmate at the training academy in Albany. He was a former Marine, worked as a welder upstate. He's like, where are you from, Conover? And I said, I, I live in the Bronx, which I do. <clears throat> He's like, you don't live in the Bronx. So I said, <laughs> I said, well, I might, you know, I, I live in a kind of nice part of the Bronx. He'd go, what the fuck? What are you doing here, Conover? And I'd go, what are you doing here? Let me get some sleep. And he, he, it's like, yeah, he, he made me right. He figured me out and I had to just keep telling him he was, he was, he was on you like uh, George Plimpton. You know, you know, <laughs> exactly. George Plimpton, he used to, he's, I guess he, he trained, did he train with Muhammad Ali and he was quarter, he played quarterback for the Detroit Lions for a little while as a, exactly. Yeah. He tried his hand at all these sports and he's a great model of immersion journalism, um, sort of more for entertainment than social change. Yeah. No, but, uh, nobody thought Plimpton was for real at any, in any of those situations. And no, so he's got this patrician <laughs> accent and everything, but I, the only person besides that CO was a prisoner who, um, who, who was incredibly perceptive. And um, wow, one day I had, I had uh, brought a suit to the office because uh, my wife and I were going to a, a wedding reception up in Westchester after work. And I was out so late at that party. I, I got three hours sleep. I went back to work the next day. And this prisoner watched me walking down the um, corridor with his mirror and he said, Conover, how come you're walking like you should be wearing a tuxedo today? And I said, what are you talking about? And I felt he just looked right into my soul. A different day, he said, what are you doing here, Conover? You should be, you should be a teacher or something like that. I don't know what you're doing here. 
<laughs> I'm sure there's some perceptive guys in there, right? There no, are. No question. There are. So, Ted, there's actually lots more I want to ask you about this, but I feel we're taking up a lot of your time. But I still want to get back to your original book. Okay. Um, because we teach at a university. We, we work at a university. Actually, none of us teach anymore. And this started off as your undergraduate thesis. And it's pretty remarkable, right, what you did. I think many people are looking for exciting thesis projects. They want to do something slightly different. And I can't think of any better example of someone thinking of a pretty interesting thesis project that really led to a life's work. So take us back to, what was it, 1979? <laughs> so when I discovered anthropology, I didn't really know what anthropology was until I got to college. And um, once I learned about ethnography and the anthropological field method, which is participant observation, I thought, well, that's kind of like the, the kind of journalism I want to do. Only anthropologists spend more time, right? They go deeper. They learn the language. They, they'll make a home in a different place for a few years. And um, so I thought, well, if they'll let me do an ethnography, I'll, I'll write a thesis. And they actually weren't that keen for me to do an ethnography. And when they learned it would involve writing the rails, they, um, they said that would not be possible because after all, it's against the law you're on private property. And, and then my advisor said, he was this great guy, but he was very sort of ivory tower. And he said, besides, you could be subject to homosexual rape or fall off a train and <laughs> lose your legs. And I said, well, those things could happen, but I, I really am going to be careful. And he's like, <clears throat> he said, I'm sorry, I cannot condone this project. And I, um, I circled back though and I said, what if I left college, if I went on a leave of absence and I rode the rails with the express purpose of taking notes of, um, you know, asking all these questions that ethnographers asked, um, would you consider letting me write my thesis about it? And to my amazement, they said yes. So they weren't committed, but they were open to it. And when I came back, yeah, you'll like this. I actually got credit retroactively for riding the rails upon payment of tuition for that semester. <laughs> <laughs> so the college came out ahead, but I did too, because I got to do real research. I got to consider, you know, that discipline at the most essential level, which is a person by himself trying to make sense of this foreign world. And then I got to have this kind of mythic American adventure of riding freight trains. And it was, uh, I, I just feel so lucky. It actually worked out and, and I did not lose my legs, et cetera. I, I can't resist. I know we're out of, running out of time, but I got to ask a few questions. So were you aware at all of any of Hemingway's writings when he was young about being a hobo? And, and he actually talks about you have to have a knife, otherwise you'll be subject to homosexual rape. Uh, so maybe your, your professor had read that. There's, I think probably <clears throat> there's all kinds of great writers, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, oh, there's a bunch of obviously Kerouac and, um, lots of great literary figures have done their time riding the rails. And I read a bunch of those before I went. I don't think many of them actually did it for very long, 
It's more a matter of can you ride a couple trains and meet some guy with a dirty face and have a a cup of of whiskey or coffee with him in a freight yard and then you've then you can go home. I I really it for me it was not about that so much as I really wanted to know why would a person really choose to do this week after week, month after month? Because parts of it are, are kind of great, but lots of it is not. So yeah, it was uh, it, it was a way to have an adventure, but really think about it. And that's it's yeah, it's kind of what I've kept doing. Back in the '90s, I was teaching uh, University of Maryland. I got to know people at the National Coalition for the Homeless. Uh huh. They had a program called the Urban Plunge where college students would go live on the streets for two days, often under, you know, under the guidance of one of the homeless people who the coalition knew. And I sent a bunch of students on this project and, um, to have this experience. And they, they said it was just, it was, it was transformative, right? Although they did it for such a small period of time, a fraction of what you did it for, and your experience, of course, a fraction of what an actual person riding the rails or a homeless person did. But I personally actually did it for three days. Oh, really? And I lived on the streets of D.C. And uh, it was the most eye-opening experience of my life. I mean, I can count oh. among the top five. It, it was just wow. absolutely singular. The, you get the sense of you, how incredibly cold it is on days in which it doesn't seem very cold because you're sleeping on cardboard, on concrete often. You have to trust people who you don't actually know. And so you're in this group of people, but you never quite fall asleep Exactly. You know, the sleeping it, is the scariest part. It's, it's extraordinary. And and the other thing that you should, you really become a sense of how you feel excluded from normal society. So I, I describe it as you get the impression there's like a ceiling above you, which is kind of a glass ceiling. You can see these people above you, but they're just in a different world. You don't feel like you can talk to them. You believe you can to kind of internalize a sense of inferiority. And it's yeah. reinforced. Like I, I went into bookstores and I get kicked out within half an hour if I had my, my garbage bag full of things. Um, but it was just, it, 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 you know, I taught homelessness for a couple of years, but I just had no conception, right? I, I like, of course, I, I went home to my place well after that, my comfortable place in Adams Morgan, you know, but I still, the, the awareness of that, that perspective stuck with me and it just gave me a really different sense of how, what it's like to be on, at least a, a glimmer of what it might be like for someone to be on the streets. I actually made a friend through there and I, a homeless guy and I, I gave him the keys to my apartment and he wow. would kind of come and go as he liked. His name wow. was Noodles. And he reminds me of some of the people you talked about. He's a guy who the coalition at various points tried to get Noodles housing and a job. No- Noodles his was, was his name? His name was Noodles, yeah. And he, he, he didn't want to stay in housing regularly. He didn't want the job. He's one of the, like, the small percentage of people who actually sort of like the freedom. And like, it's a very social place. It's a, it's a, I mean, almost everyone I encountered was crazy. And like not not even exaggerating some degree. I think living on the streets for a substantial period of time makes you crazy, which people have realized now with the housing first movement, right? The idea is now you have to get people off the streets before they become stable enough and get help. But but Noodles really, um, he just seemed to, th- to thrive out there. I don't think he's alive anymore because, you know, nothing will end your life faster than living on the streets for a long time. But even that tiny experience for me was just uh, incredibly eye-opening. I'm so glad you, you told that story. And I met a couple of professors um, in Denver when I was writing Rolling Nowhere who, who sent their students out for those kinds of experiments just for a night or two. And there was a, there was a moment, wasn't there, in the culture when 
people were trying that kind of thing more often. I, I think it's faded, but I think as long as it's properly contextualized, um, you know, what might be gained, that a lot can be gained because it, you, you experience this on such a visceral level when people won't look at you. And, that's it. That's and it. Rolling. People don't make eye contact with you. That's one of those singular things. And that makes you, that creates incredible sense of inferiority. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's so powerful and, and it's so quick, um, that lesson. You know, I, I um, it, I, as a result, I, right now I make a point of making eye contact, making eye contact with people, you know, it's just, it's, it just seems like it's almost a dehumanizing act not to, you know, having had that, having had that experience. S- similarly, it's interesting, you know, there's one woman who immediately made me, right? She just like, huh. hey, are you really homeless? I mean, you know, because, <laughs> you know, it, I think the fact that I was black helped a lot, right? Because in DC, the overwhelming majority of homeless population is black, you know, but she was like, she wasn't having any of it. You don't live in the Bronx. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't live in the street. Um, hey, hey, Ted, I have, I have one final question. I know we're almost out of time. That the style of journalism that you do, when you encounter students that are interested in that kind of thing, what what do you say to them? How do you teach them? I mean, not the kind of kid who just wants to be a beat reporter on at the Washington Post or something, but this kind of stuff that you do. What what do you say to them? Well, so <clears throat> I say it's. A, it's, journalism's a hard way to make a living. You'd, you'd be lucky to get a regular kind of journalism job these days. But that said, um, the world is it's crying out um, with situations that would benefit from having a journalist there um, and, and people who would benefit from having a witness to what they're, what they're living through. And the barrier to entry, you know, is often practically zero in terms of money <clears throat> it if you're a middle class person you probably can figure out how to get where you need to go to try something like this the biggest cost is the opportunity cost of giving up a different kind of job to take some time to try something but i say you know do everything you can to um ensure your safety don't take crazy risks don't drink with the hobos before you get on the train, <clears throat> you know, if you don't trust that guy, sleep a mile away from him. Um, <laughs> I did carry a knife briefly, but I've felt so much more at risk carrying one than not carrying one that I got rid of it. But I, I, I tell people, I think there's a lot of room for risk taking. Um, uh, in, in the world <clears throat> we're in and that, and that it, you should, you should think about that. So I do encourage them, but not in any kind of Yahoo way, if you will, because things can go wrong. They definitely can go wrong. That said, if you're a careful person, I think there's a lot to be gained. Well, Ted, this has been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, I appreciate the chance to talk about things at this level. And we're hoping that you know you're willing to come back um, to talk to us about your new book when it comes out, or maybe some of your articles. Because Steve actually passed me um, the article about the slaughterhouse, uh, your time ah. at USDA, and I, we don't have time today. But I, I, I really want to ask you how 
how do people how do you manage to get hired anymore because <laughs> I, <laughs> that's for another day but uh hope yeah. we can talk to you again that, let's start the next interview with that question because that's very germane right okay thanks so much thanks a lot talk Ted. To you later. yeah thanks guys <laughs>